If you have your scriptures with you, turn. I'm going to finish this last little section of the book of Ephesians this morning in chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Let's begin at verse 29 and go through the end of the chapter. Verse 29, Ephesians chapter 4, and go through the end of the chapter this morning. The apostle writes, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we come this morning, we do so marked by the truth of who you are and what you've done. We are those redeemed. those who have encountered grace, who have been shown mercy in the blood of Jesus Christ. Oh, what great love you've loved us with, Father, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. What glorious truth that is. And greater still, Father, that we've been plunged beneath the cleansing flood and flow of the blood of your Son to be sanctified in this place no longer to succumb to sin but to have power and victory over our sin to lead holy and righteous lives here for your glory father as we open these words just briefly of this passage the remaining words in this passage this morning that you have for us i pray that you go past my simple abilities Speak directly to the hearts of your people through the power and the work of the Holy Spirit. That's how truth is delivered. And it's in that truth that you are glorified. It's in that truth that we grow as your people. It's in that truth that we mature, that we are being exchanged from one moment of glory to the next to be made more like your son. We're being transformed into the likeness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. What glorious truths that is. Feed your people this day, Father. Encourage them. Strengthen them. For this, this world is difficult. And we need your power. We need your grace. Fill us, O oh Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So there's this fabulous statement in verse 30. And that's really the center and the remainder of what we're going to look at regarding these injunctions that the apostles set forth, we've seen the positive, negative nature first, the positive nature, and the reason why. If you go back to verse 25 there, you see that pattern. He says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, because we're members of one another. He's speaking specifically uh, about the church. We're neighbors with our local church, right? Uh, so we're to put away falsehood, speak truth, because we're members of one another. And it's in that we find a great truth 
that sets the Christian apart from the person of the world. And that is the Christian has the power of the Holy Spirit to actually change. All the world and all the self-help books are trying to get you to be good, to get you to be disciplined, to get you to quit lying or quit doing this or quit eating too much or whatever it is. Whatever sin it is, it's trying to get you to quit. Just be good. If you could just pull up yourself by your own bootstraps, you can do this, man. And I'll encourage you at $29.95 a book, right? That's what the world is doing. Uh, it's full of self-help books because it doesn't have an answer what Christianity has an answer for, and that is it sees man as sinful, that our lying is part of our nature, and that our nature has to be changed, and only can your nature be changed in the blood of Jesus Christ in the gospel. Only can you have a new heart. A lot of people out there live in what's called moralism. They try to be good. They try to do the right thing, but they fail. They have to be changed to the point where they do the right thing as a compulsion because it's just automatic in them now. I can't tell you the number of people I've heard give me this testimony that have been truly saved. Oh, Pastor, I don't want to cuss anymore. I've always cussed. I like cussing. I guess I didn't like it because I always done it. All I remember is doing that. But now I don't even know why I don't want to do it, but I'm trying not to do it. That's a, that's a simple picture of someone that's been truly transformed. That by the power of the Holy Spirit, we have a new heart and now, not only do we not want to sin, because the conviction of our conscience makes everybody not want to sin at some level to be a better version of themselves, but we have the power not to sin and the power of the Holy Spirit. So it may look odd to some people that through these injunctions, these six injunctions, Paul puts in verse 30. It's an absolutely fantastic doctoral statement, and he says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. It's a tremendous doctrinal statement about the truth of how we can no longer sin as Christians. How we can, as he said earlier, I think it's in verse 22, put off the old man and put on the new. To put away the old self and bring in the new person. How we can glorify God. Isn't that what we're called to do? To glorify God as Christians. To live uh, as these unique people who no longer want to sin who no longer want to follow the world. The problem is, beloved, is that we're somewhere in the middle of that. We get weak in our faith and we turn to the things of the world and when we do that, we have the possibility of grieving the Holy Spirit. And it's the understanding of the work of the Spirit this morning, I think, is what I want to transpose to you the most. It's the truth about Paul's statement about how we can grieve the Holy Spirit. It's a fantastic statement if you spend enough time thinking about it. It talks about a deep relationship we have with God through a spirit that lives within us. And he is not painting us in some way or putting a mark on our forehead. He is the mark. God says that one over there has got my spirit in him. He is mine. Holy Spirit lives in us. It's a very close relationship. So this tremendous statement in the midst of these injunctions about the Christian life is not a mistake. It's not the apostle's folly. He just kind of gets to daydreaming and writes something off the wall like that. It's purposeful because it's what allows us, it allows us as Christians uh, to be separated from paganism and to live a life separate from this world, to be holy as God is holy. A lot of us don't think about ourselves like that. God is calling you to be holy like he is holy. Are you being holy like he is holy? And how do you become holy like he is holy? 
So we start out this morning by a simple question. What drives and motivates you? What is your motivation in life? What is it, beloved, that gives you direction? What is it that gets you out of bed and engenders passion in your life and in your life each day? What is it that gets your desires up? What is it that sets your course? And what is it that causes you to follow that course? What is it? Can you answer that easily this morning? Where does your desires and what are they driven from? Where do they come from and what are they driven from? Is it just random and chance? Is your life going to be what it's going to be every day when you get out of bed just by happenstance? Who is directing this? Who's planning? Who's guiding your life? Is your life by chance or is it by design? Is it at random or is there some greater purpose? And we can further illustrate this by looking at the life of the lost because there is a randomness to the life of the lost because the life of the lost person is characterized by a certain unpredictability that is hard to miss if you look just a little bit. They live their life with the primary objective of achieving their own pleasure and happiness, just as you and I did, beloved, just as some of you might still be doing here today. But to this end, they pursue their passions with a single-minded focus, making use of all the resources and abilities to this end. They are guided only by their own desires, and the satisfaction of their craving is their top priority. This way of living is often referred to in Scripture as living by the desires of the flesh. Living by the desires of the flesh, as it is driven purely by human instinct to seek pleasure and gratification. But Proverbs 14 Verse 12 says this, there is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way to death. There's a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way to death. And surely if the lost person understood this fully, he would not just live for the passions of the flesh, but he would turn from them and see his need in Christ. But yet they're random, they're living, they're going on to the next great thing. The life of a lost person is lived mostly under the conviction of their conscience and their conscience alone. But they don't even follow that. But because of the desires of the flesh, that conviction is not primary in a lost person's life. So the conscience, which is indeed God-given, has God's law written on it, becomes more of a suggestive standard by which they live by. A kind of a normative guide that keeps the person within the realm of humanity. For instance, Everybody would agree with the statement that, that Hitler is bad and that murder should be punished. Yet the lost person will also easily say that abortion is a right legal wrong. This is how we suggestively use our conscience to remain in the human sphere. We all agree that Hitler is bad and that if somebody murders somebody here this morning that they should go to prison for that. They should be remanded for that. But the person that is, pushing his conscience and not following his conscience can also allow for grievous sin in their lives. The conscience is greatly skewed then by the desires of the flesh. And that is the nature of the lost person. The conscience kind of becomes a bump and feel sort of instrument. You know, my wife loves to move stuff around. 
She moves furniture around, right? We did some of that this weekend. She can't deny it. I've got her dead to rights on this. And I get up early, usually about 4 a.m., or I try to, and I'm really quiet sneaking around. What is the first thing you do when something's out of place? I, men just have this sense. They know where the edge of everything is. But when my wife moves stuff, I bump right into it, and it gets me in my little toe, right? Amen. Right? <laughs> Feel my pain, brother. So that's kind of how we use, as lost persons use their conscience. It's kind of a bump and feel. If it's not too bad, they can make their way through it. Uh, this explains drug addiction. This explains greed, divorce, and many of society. This explains the world in which we see around us. And if you consider that example of divorce and how we compromise our conscience, or lost people do, and kind of live at random because of it, because the consequences of sin take them places they don't want to go or they didn't think they were going to go. A long time ago, I preached a sermon about abortion and uh, how it's one of those sins that you don't know the depravity of the sin until you sin the sin that you've contemplated. In other words, a lot of times we contemplate a sin. You know, it's, it's made real by the little picture of the devil on one side of your shoulder going, oh, you can do this, it won't be so bad, and the angel on the other side saying, well, you know, God says you're not supposed to do it. And the devil goes, well, you know, everybody else is doing it. And it's, look, look at their lives. It's not really bad. And the angel says, no, God said don't do it. But then when you sin, the sin you've been contemplating sinning, it becomes way more sinful than you ever thought it could be because you're living the consequences of that sin. And most of it comes with the shame and guilt because of the conviction of your conscience. So the conscience is pushed away. It's like, it's dull. It becomes a bump and feel sort of. It's kind of like predicting the weather. It's not very accurate then when we treat it like that because of the lust of the flesh. I think it's a good illustration to this is divorce. A couple who once shared a deep and passionate love, but over time that passion fades away, leaving behind a feeling of emptiness and indifference. This happens because human desires are really very unpredictable and can change rapidly. When we enter into marriage based only on the physical attraction and the desires, we leave ourselves vulnerable to the inevitable changes in our desires. And as a result, our marriages change too. However, marriage is not just about physical attraction and desire. It's much more than that. It's a sacred covenant that is founded on the word of God and the will of God. This covenant is built on not on human emotions, but on a deep sense of commitment and devotion towards that other person. Unfortunately, many people do not understand the true meaning of marriage, and they fail to recognize that their desires will inevitably change over time. They may know, and they probably do know, that divorce is wrong. Again, here the conscience is written on the heart, and God does not like divorce, but they still give over and justify their fleshly desires, believing that it is just the best course of action for them. They've just grown apart. They justify their actions by saying that the divorce, yes, it's going to be difficult, but not the worst thing that can happen and that many others are doing it and they sure seem happy. But this is what they find quickly is that God is sovereign in the lost man's life, just as he is in the Christian's life. He allows the natural consequences of sin to take place and they have their full effect so that you know, um, the kids grow up without a father because dad's off going after his own desires and passions, fulfilling the next great thing that his heart has led him to. And pretty soon your 15-year-old's 
getting in trouble at school because he's got a little bit of a drug addiction and he's on his way to jail. Those things always become worse when we deny our conscience and do just what feels good. It's not random. All sin has consequence. God is sovereign over all of it. And dad's conscience, that dull instrument, told him, divorce, told him divorce was wrong, but the world said it was good. Yet here we are, a man who ignored his conscience to follow his heart. It's a familiar story, right? And though he knew it would be wrong because of his conscience, the consequences would not be immediate, though, and the risks seemed low. So he chose to divorce in the world. He chose what feels good over what is good, and he finds himself still empty and alone. And in comes yet another new passion or desire, and he's off in his random life. A new passion, a new desire, a new drive, and off he goes again chasing this passion or desire. And so the cycle repeats itself. And this is the randomness of a lost person. This is what drives them, their passions, their fleshly lusts. And I ask each one of you this morning, you know this guy? <laughs> have you been this guy? And each one of us have to answer yes. We all understand the consequences of our sin. Have you ever justified your actions by denying the conviction of your conscience to go after the desires of the flesh? And of course we all answer yes to that. Sin knows no bounds. We all know it well. What motivates you at that point? What gives and drives your purpose in the world? Is it random pleasure? Is it the next great thing or is there a greater purpose? For the lost person, the passions of the flesh drive him or her to deny their conscience and go after whatever feels good. They bargain and justify and say the consequences, if any, won't be that bad. Everyone else is doing it, by the way. But the saved person cannot live like that. The saved person cannot say the same things. The saved person must put off the old man and the old fleshly desires because the saved person must live by the Spirit. Not by the passions of the flesh, but by the Spirit, beloved. Let's turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Perhaps there's several places that Paul <clears throat> tells the truth of the work of the Spirit in the believer. But perhaps chapter 8 of the book of Romans, beginning there in the first verse, explains it more specifically than any other. Colossians 3, verses 1 through 17 would be another place in direct reference to the church. But as believers, we must be those who live by the Spirit. Read those words with me there. In verses 1 through 4, Paul says this, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin... He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. In us who, do you see that's very important? We don't miss this last little section. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. In other words, the work that Christ has done that God has set forth for him to do, 
that's effective and efficacious in the believer only, the one who walks by the Spirit and not by the flesh. It is the Spirit-dwelled individual that emits this kind of non-condemnation of the law. God has forgiven you of all your sins if you live by the Spirit and not by the flesh. These are two different people totally, and Paul wants to segregate that this morning. The law of God is fulfilled in us by the work of Christ. That is, in Christ dying so that we can live, the law of God has been completed in us. I said it this morning in my prayer in Sunday school, but what has happened is God is taking all of our fleshly desires and paid the penalty, including the desires that we had before we saved and the ones that we'll have after we're saved. He's taken all of those desires, all of those sins, and he heaped them upon his son, each one of them getting the measure of what it fully deserved of the consequences of that sin, each one of them being punished to the fullest and most perfect extent. God doesn't overgive, he doesn't undergive. All sin has to be punished exactly for the crime that it's committed. And every one of those sins that you've committed and I've committed was laid there on the cross of Christ, and he, because he lived a perfect life, paid for those sins on the cross of Calvary. Hallelujah. But it does not stop there, beloved. There's something much greater still to know about this passage. Not only have my sins been paid for, but the perfect work of Jesus has been accounted to me. My sins imputed to his account and his righteousness imputed to me. And through the work of the Holy Spirit, God is continuing to sanctify us and to make us holy. Oh, beloved, he's given us the power over our sin. And he's given us the Holy Spirit that indwells us so that we can walk by that spirit and not by the lust of the flesh so that we can be made holy. So that we can be made holy. Keep reading with me there in verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. You see the, the situational awareness of Paul here. What he wants us to know is that there's no middle ground. Beloved, if your mind is set on the things of the flesh, you're not walking by the Spirit. And if your mind is set on the things of the Spirit, you're not walking by the flesh. Which one does God desire? Right. Your silence is your answer. He wants us to walk by the Spirit and not the flesh. Verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh, their mind is there on the things of the flesh. And everything else becomes skewed. Everything else becomes random. It becomes about my passions, my desires, what I want. I make myself God. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, Oh, he took it up a notch, didn't he? There's going to be an end to everyone who lives after their fleshly passions. And that end is eternal death. Verse 6, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Not just life, not just eternal life someday. It's not what you're saved from, not just an escape from hell, but it's peace. It's tranquility. It's strength. Beloved, it's encouragement. When you walk by the Spirit, you're gaining something that the lost person does not have. You're gaining the power of faith. 
You're gaining the promises of God. You're gaining the relationship of God indwelling you in the third person of the Trinity and guiding your every move in life, helping you to understand his truth, building you up in, in, in the strength of your mind, transforming your mind from who you used to be to who he's making you eternally, right? Oh, that's so powerful. The world has no answer for that. All they can say is, oh, you need to try harder to be good. And if you're not... If, if you can't be good, what happens to you? You go to jail, right? You're incarcerated. For the mind, verse 7, that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Because of the nature of sin and the depth of the depravity in us, it cannot please God. And it cannot stop itself. It needs the power and the work of the gospel. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, verse 9, here's the good news. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, though your physical body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. And there's those two things being held in tension there. We live in the old dead body. That's why uh, Romans would tell us the wages of sin are death. The proof of that is that everyone dies. Right? But for the believer, the wages of sin are the gateway to paradise. The moment we leave this physical body, we stand before the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the time that we live between now and then, we stand in the presence of the indwelt spirit doing what the spirit calls us to do unless we deny it. The saved person's desire to equivocate on his conscience as leading then has to end here because of the work of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. In fact, the opposite is true, and this is good news to the believer. The believer no longer has to make a deal with his conscience for he is now as the desire to live by his conscience. He no longer are the two at odds because the indwelling of the Holy Spirit destroys the work and will of the flesh and sets forth the work of the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit, through the process of sanctification, is giving the believer the ability to live up to the standard of his conscience. How about that? No longer does your conscience it says in Romans 2 convict you it confirms you that's what it means to have power over sin is that when that internal conflict takes place you're already wanting to do what your conscience is leading you to do and it merely doesn't convict you anymore it confirms you in your heart Paul talks about that in Romans 2 if you'd like to read more about it later this is the putting off of the old self that Paul's talking about back in Ephesians Verses 22 through 24. It's the putting off of the old self and putting on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. It's the new life. Beloved, this is exactly what the injunctions in Ephesians 4 are teaching us. To be changed, to be holy, to be separate from this world is to be the church, is to love one another, is to quit telling lies, right? It's to be angry but not sin with it. All of those injunctions that Paul gives us in verse 4, let's just run through them again. 
Therefore put away falsehood, speak truth, because we're all one people. Be angry and do not sin. Let no thief no longer steal, but let him labor. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only the talk that's good to building up life that fits the occasion. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now you see why the negatives and positives are here. Because how do we grieve the Holy Spirit of God? Is to say that we are of the Spirit of God, yet not do the things the Spirit of God is leading us to do. You want to talk about a real conflict in a person? Deny, try to deny what the Holy Spirit's calling you to do. How many times have you done that? Heck, you, we all have. Brother, brother, beloved, I've done it too. You see that person over there and you know the Spirit says, go share with them. Go share the hope of the gospel with them. But yet you walk on by. You come up with some excuse. That's grieving the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's telling you to go to church. I promise you the Holy Spirit tells you to go to church. Go to church on prayer meeting. Oh, I haven't got time. These things are so important in my life. I'm so busy. Go to the men's group. Go to the Bible study. Go to the women's group. Go to the Bible study. Spend time reading your Bible. Spend time in prayer. We, we find other things to do at these times. And when we do, we grieve the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the Holy Spirit's work, and I think when you understand this, you'll see why the Holy Spirit can be grieved. The Holy Spirit's work is sanctification. The Holy Spirit was given to make you holy. This is the great doctrine of sanctification and the great truth of God's work in man to begins with salvation to redeem a people for himself and then to make them holy as he is holy. In 1 Peter, um, as we read in chapter 1, go back there. Uh, that, that passage in 1 Peter is, is so beautiful. We read that this morning for a propitiation passage. Beginning in verse 13, we just read these words. 1 Peter 1, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, mind you, Paul's already said in Ephesians 4 that not only can we grieve the Holy Spirit, but that the Holy Spirit marks us for the coming salvation, this revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Hmm, that's tough. That's tough to say that what you did as a sinner was your former ignorance and that these were fed by your passions for those things. That's exactly what the Bible says when it says you were following the desires of the flesh. Verse 15, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. God is making us like his son Jesus. And if you call on verse 17, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, then so conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time here on this earth in exile, knowing that you were ransomed from these futile ways, this fleshly desires, you were purchased from them. Uh, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, even though they be precious, 
This is not what purchased your life for you. This is not what has purchased your, your holiness for you. Verse 19, but the purchase that was made, the great exchange that was given so that you can be holy, so that you can be without sin, so that you can be indwelt by the Holy Spirit and be sanctified and be made more like Christ was paid for with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And this was known before, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world and made manifest in these last times. Why? It says here, for your, for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope indeed are in God. 1 Corinthians 2 says it this way, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. The Greek word there is morose, where we get our word moronic. We don't accept the things of the Spirit of God if we don't have the Spirit of God within us. That means we don't accept the truth of God, the wisdom of God, what God is doing in the world until the Spirit indwells us. But once the Spirit indwells us, we get a wisdom from God that the world cannot have and cannot produce. The spiritual person then can judge all things, but is himself to be judged by no one, Paul goes on, he says, for who has understand, understood the mind of the Lord so as instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. Beloved, this is good news. And let me tell you how this manifests itself. Let me tell you how it becomes practical. Because if you want to live in the world with victory over the world, you need to live by faith. You need to be guided by something other than your passions. Where have your passions gotten you? Paul tells us in Romans. It gave you the fruit that you're not proud of today. The things that you're ashamed of today still are where your passions led you as a young man or young woman. That's what God saved you from. But now you live by faith with the instruction of the Holy Spirit that lives in you. And you're able to do things that you could not ever imagine before in the flesh. I don't care how powerful you thought you were in the flesh, how much money you thought you had, because these men and women throughout Scripture, if you just turn your Bible to the book of, uh, of Hebrews in chapter 11, you can read about all of them that are dedicated there. But men like Noah, who built a boat, he did something on faith and through the power and the work of the Holy Spirit that would never have been done if he would have decided to follow the desires of the flesh. I'm telling you, beloved, there are things that you can do if you'll turn away from the flesh and turn to the working of the Holy Spirit in you that nobody else can do that God has set for you to do. There's power you can have. There is encouragement. There is strength to live in this world and overcome you. Joshua took a city by dancing around it because that's what the Spirit told him to do seven times. Abraham moved to a land he didn't even know about. Just get going and I'll show you someday. These men, you tell me they couldn't have been so fearful. They looked at this world and the desires of the flesh and they had to leave them all behind because the Spirit was driving them to holiness and to do great things for God. And I know this, beloved, about you and this church. We need people here ready to listen to the Spirit so we can do great things for God. This community needs us to be followers of the Spirit.
Sanctification is you're being made new. It's you, you letting go of all the flimsy, flim-flam things of this world so that you can get a hold of the eternal. It's getting rid of the temporal and grabbing on to that's going to last forever. It may look desirous here, and you may think you need it, but if it's a desire of the flesh, throw it away and run, and you'll never be sorry that you did. If that's what the Holy Spirit is in doing in you, then how do we grieve him becomes the obvious question from what Paul wrote here. He said, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. What is grief? I think this simple understanding answers how we grieve the Holy Spirit of God better than anything that I found this week as I researched this passage. What is grief? I often say this in funeral counseling. I had a counseling appointment just this past week in my office where I told somebody, you know, whatever God's doing in the world may cause grief in us. He may take a 28-year-old young lady because of cancer, but if it brought her to salvation, was it worth it? And what truly is grief? Grief is, for those who are left, they feel that grief and that loss, don't we? We're disconnected from somebody we loved. It's, it's a tragedy that she was lost. And we grieve because there was a strong emotion there. And there's strong emotion there because there's a relationship there. This Spirit of God Himself indwells you and He loves you and everything He does is for your good. And when you deny Him, He's heartbroken. Because there's loss there. Loss of potential. The young lady left this world when she was 28 and she had three young children. Think about what could have been. This is how we grieve the Holy Spirit. Grief is a strong emotion that overtakes you whenever something bad happens to someone you deeply care for. We all understand that grief is a common emotional feeling of a loss at someone's death. Thus, grief is no disconnected feeling. For the Holy Spirit to be grieved then he has to be first joined to that person in a deep relationship. People you have no relational connection to will not grieve you. And the Holy Spirit loves the Christian and desires his good in such a way that grief is the result of that person not remitting that same relationship back to the Holy Spirit. Grief is the experience of coping with loss. Most of us think it has to do with the death of a loved one, but grief can accompany any event that disrupts or challenges our sense of normalcy or ourselves. You see, when the Holy Spirit is in you, it's normal that you're becoming holy. You're reading your scriptures. You're understanding the truth. You're understanding what God desires from you, and you're living in that pattern of life. And other people are seeing you live in that pattern of life, and God is glorified in that, not only glorified because you have changed. It takes a supernatural power to change you. It's nothing you can do. You can read all the self-help books that have ever been published from the beginning of time until the end of time, and you will not find anything that will positively change you like the indwelling of the Holy Spirit will change you. Thus, the Christian is defined as being led and living by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, and that is what now defines his person and his living, and any loss of that connection, that relationship, any harm to that relationship, to that process of sanctification will grieve the Holy Spirit. 
He's not forcing you. He's working in and through you. You know this. Your conscience knows this. And thus your willing choice to deny the calling or moving the Holy Spirit works to grieve him. And grief is a very natural reaction to loss. So. The Holy Spirit's heart is broken in this. He is the Spirit of God at work in you, and he knows the very thoughts of your mind. Beloved, the Holy Spirit of God indwells you and knows your thoughts this morning. Again, in Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the Spirit of that person, which is in him. Just as you know things about yourself that you've never told anything anybody else, so when the Spirit indwells you, he knows things about you that you've never told anybody. Be truthful and honest with that spirit and you will not grieve him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. So there's a trade-off there. You get the Holy Spirit of God, you've got the thoughts of God. And that means he puts this ending on it and this is where we're going to end this morning. Paul says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. He is there, he indwells you. He's for your growth and for your purpose. But he also says here, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now that ceiling is, I wish I had more time to talk about this morning. I wish I had another hour to do that. That ceiling is not something he puts on a mark on your forehead or on your arm or something that he does, but it's him indwelling you. It's his personage within each one of you as believers. He is the mark. He indwells you. He empowers you, and he is sealing you. Beloved, he is keeping you faithful until the day of salvation when sin is no more. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, and again, these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest is love. Why is the greatest love? Because when we stand before Jesus, no longer will faith or hope be a part of it because it will all be the love of the Savior between his people and himself. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Beloved, the life of the believer is not what you're saved from, but what you're being saved to. He is sealing you for the day of redemption. It is positive. It is what God is doing in you. He is working sin out of you. He is making you holy. And the life of the believer is never random. That process is taking place from beginning to end, and he is working in you purposefully. He is working in you to bring about his will and his purpose in this earth, and you have great power whenever you follow the working of God in your life through the power of the Holy Spirit. And when you don't, you grieve him. God is working in you a will and a perfection that will give you life and life more abundantly, beloved. Don't deny that work. No matter how odd it seems to this world, it will bring life more abundantly to you in this world. It's through the power of the Spirit he is working all things to the good for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. He is sealing you. He is holding you. He is capturing you and taking you to the day when you stand before Jesus, beloved. Now, just very quickly, turn to Ezekiel 36 with me this morning. Back to the chapter we read. But let's begin in verse 25 this time. Are you there? 
I love to hear the pages of your Bible. Go to chapter 37 first. I promise we'll end here. The hand of the Lord was upon me. This is Ezekiel writing. 37 verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones and he led me around and among them and behold there were very many on the surface of the valley and behold they were very dry bones and he said to me son of man can these bones live can these bones live where are the bones beloved can God do an amazing work in our dry bones go back to the 25th verse of the previous chapter and let's just read 25th verse of the 36th chapter I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your unrighteousness and uncleanliness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and I will give you a new spirit. I will put a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone in your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my real rules so that you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Hmm. Don't deny that spirit. Don't grieve him. That great work is taking place in you, beloved. David said in Psalms 51.11, Cast me not away from your presence, Lord, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. The Holy Spirit was the guiding principle. It was the guiding light. It was the spirit within David that led him to do all the great things that David did. And when David turned away from the work of that spirit, he sinned his greatest sins with Bathsheba. The Holy Spirit is the presence of God, beloved, of the God, of creator of all the ends of the earth, and he indwells your soul. He's reassuring you of your work and your faith. And he's convicting you to live and be holy in that living and work and holiness. There is great faith to be had like men like Noah had and like Joshua had and women like Rahab had. Men like Abraham, like David. They weren't great. What was great is that God lived in him. And they did the work of God through the Spirit of God. These men were scared out of their wits to do what they did. And what's been recorded in Scripture about them because they did it because they feared God. They feared God more than they feared man and his abiding presence in them spoke to them and moved them as they did these great things. Beloved, your life is lived in power. Your life is lived in the power of the Holy Spirit of God. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we come this day, I'm impressed by one thing this morning, is that we're people that must be dependent on you and your spirit that indwells us. Father, this world comes up with some great arguments. It began on the garden, at the Garden of Eden with the enemy confusing the truth and dealing with the desires of our flesh. And it's no different today. We have in front of us the truth in your scriptures and we have indwelling us 
your mind, your presence in the third person of the Trinity who loves us, who gives us and grows us and wants to sanctify us and make us holy. Let us not grieve him. Beloved, let us not deny the work of God within us. Let us be holy as he is holy. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, the men that are going to take the table with us this morning, Brother Hector.